0: This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Father, I pray that you are glorified and seen clearly this morning for who you really are and that you would, by your spirit, move in power and might Through the preaching and proclaiming of your holy word, your perfect truth. Jesus, would you be seen as glorious, as wonderful, everlasting, mighty Savior? Would you be seen as enough? Would you be seen as the resting place for our weary, tired souls that are searching and continually searching for identity and significance and value and worth? Would you catch our hearts and our lives this morning and tell us, rest. God, do this, please. Please, Father. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. Let's jump here in verse 11. All right, we're going to work our way through this passage of scripture with a lot of diligence. We've got some ground to cover. Verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Beloved, identity. Peter's looking at these early Christians, he's writing this letter to a group of churches, right? They're experiencing marginalization and ridicule. He's, it's, it's, it's a year to two years before Nero goes brutally crazy on Christians. He's enforcing upon them. He's, he's not moving from their identity. He's encouraging them once more. Beloved, identity. Sojourners, identity. Exiles, identity. Identity. Stay far from the passions, the desires, the natural cravings in who you are. They're real passions. They feel like the right thing to do. Stay away from those passions of the flesh. Fight the ever so natural driftings of your fallen nature. Fight the current that is often all too easy to follow. There is a war raging within you. Christian, there is a war raging within you. Not a rub. Not, not a little conflict. It's an all-out war on your soul. There is a war raging within you because for Christians, it's not just the flesh that's there, but the spirit is there. The old man, the sin of man is there. The new man The Spirit of God is there. The self is there. The Spirit is there. The Adam, the old man, and the Jesus, the new man, is there. And your flesh is a wild, crazy, lunatic animal that is thirsty only for the death of your soul and the death of your spirit. And Peter says, Realize this. Don't don't drift to be oblivious to this fact. There is a war, an onslaught of evil within you to keep you from doing the things that you ought to be doing as an obedient exile and sojourner scattered as the church. He says, abstain and remove yourself as far away from possible from these cravings and passions of the flesh. Fight the drifting towards those passions but he gives us a fantastic reason why here in the following verses. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. All right, so he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's not easy to do the right thing. Speaking of doing the right thing, that's not easy to do, but it's very difficult to do. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so part of this, and that day of visitation is, it's either their conversion, when the Gentiles will be part of the new Israel, the new people of God, they'll be born again, or at the final judgment when they celebrate that Jesus is the great overcomer. And so regardless, it's a good thing that these Gentiles, these lost people will be celebrating at the day of visitation, glorifying God. So part of this, part of the fighting of the passions of your flesh, which are real desires that you want to have satisfied, they are just associated with your old nature, not your new nature that's found in Christ. Part, part of this fighting the passions of the flesh is living honorable among those who do not yet know and believe and worship Jesus Christ. And here Peter refers to them as Gentiles. It won't be easy. They're the very ones who are marginalizing these Christians, exiling these early Christians. And yet this is part of what this inner turmoil and this personal war is all about that Peter's speaking of. He's saying, live in such a way among those who are exiling you, so that when they try to accuse you of something, it simply won't stick because you're living above reproach. You're living above criticism. Live in such a way that accusations against you, it won't stick. But, but notice that these accusations are based on these early Christians being evildoers. Though themselves, they're not evildoers. It's one thing to be considered an evildoer when you're living an evil lifestyle. These people are not living an evil lifestyle, but they're being accused of that. It's very clear that Peter is referencing Jesus' teaching here that he heard with his own ears. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. And this is a part of what we read just a while ago in verses 9 and 10. This is part of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Back in verse 9. Is living honorable among those who are persecuting you. Our hope in, in living this way in obedience to this teaching is that others would glorify God and be drawn to Jesus. So those are two very formative verses And for the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking the implications and the practical ramifications of those two verses. So he's taking it further here, practically. Look in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. We're going to be hitting that a couple times here along the way. For the Lord's sake, the prepositional phrase there. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Here Peter is calling God's people to submit to every human institution. This means to submit to every human order. This includes government. This this includes church. This includes employers at work professors, marriage, parents, and so forth. Every human order, all authority. Now, when Peter uses the language of sojourners and exiles, he doesn't do it to give them a reason not to submit. Don't submit as you're being exiled because you're being oppressed. Don't submit to that. It's not what he's saying. He's saying these words as they're in exile to call them back to the narrative of being God's people when they themselves were exiles in Babylon back in the Old Testament. You see, back in the Old Testament, when Israel was in captivity in Babylon, God commanded them to submit to the governing authorities that had them in exile, and on top of that, he ordered them, commanded them to live in such a way to make Babylon a better place. As you're being exiled, do good to those who are exiling you and make their city better. Work hard. Make make all that you touch good and better for the city that's exiling you. Certainly, this echoes the teaching of Jesus in an upside-down nature, right? You lead by becoming a servant. Do good to those who curse you, right? This is consistent in the teaching of Jesus. Well, now later... While under the authority of Rome, some followers decided it was better to exercise a forceful revolt against Rome, against people that were persecuting and marginalizing and exiling the early Christians, the early followers of of, of Israel. They're called zealots, people who wanted to physically, militarily take over their land and remove Rome from oppressing them. Interestingly enough, Jesus had some of these zealots in his band of disciples. Some of these zealots recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but they wanted to use physical force to bring about freedom for God's people from Rome. And that was their understanding of Messiah. Messiah will bring about a physical kingdom. He will give us our land. He'll remove all those who are oppressing us and let us live long and prosper. However, what they expected and wanted didn't happen. You see, Jesus came to defeat an even greater enemy than Rome. He came to defeat the enemy that's behind every evil. Jesus was arrested unjustly, and he never resisted. What's really interesting, you might remember, is that Peter was one of those zealots. Peter was a zealot. You remember the night of Jesus' arrest? He's confronted with Malchus, servants of the high priest, and Peter, he draws his sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus. He's a zealot. He's thinking, we have to conquer by the sword. This is our kingdom that we're bringing about. They can't take my Messiah captive. And by the way, I don't think Peter was, he was a fisherman. He wasn't precise with a sword. I doubt he was going for Malchus' ear. He's probably wanting to cut his head off and he just missed because he's a lousy aim because he's a fisherman. Jesus tells Peter, Put away the sword. Not violence, my friend. Not this way. And he bends down and redeems the error of Peter's misunderstanding of the kingdom of God that Jesus was inaugurating. And he takes the ear and heals Malchus instantly. It was there and in the progressive working of the spirit in Peter that he learned that the battle of Jesus that the battle Jesus was engaging in was not against flesh and blood it wasn't with the physical sword and the apostle paul reiterates this in ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 for we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over over this present darkness not the ones that are, that are just in places as authorities, but the ones who are over all those, we fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the true battle is against spiritual evil powers, against authorities in the heavenly realms, not those who ridicule you or accuse you. In fact, it was through Jesus' submission to the authorities, to Caesar, to Governor Pilate, that led to the defeat of the real enemy. Jesus was arrested and crucified by the authorities that were put into place to punish evildoers. He was considered an evildoer, though he never did any evil whatsoever. And then Jesus died in the place of evildoers. That's you, that's me. So that we could be set free from condemnation and slavery, from sin, the true enemy. Jesus wasn't a pacifist. It's incorrect to see him as that. He just knew who the real enemy was, who the real enemy of our souls was. He didn't fight against humans who were image bearers of God. He fought for humans to be restored, to display God's image. Jesus died to defeat the ultimate enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And by submitting to the authorities over him, Jesus defeated the evil authority that brings about all destruction in the world. And here, Peter is now aware that in God's providence and in God's sovereignty, he will bring about his purposes even through the hand of evil people. The emperor during Peter's day, during the writing of, of his letter, was Nero. Nero was, was so wicked of a ruler that he even had his mother brutally murdered. He later brutally destroyed and martyred hundreds of Christians, among whom Peter, Paul, John being exiled. Peter was ultimately crucified upside down under the reign of Nero. Yet the battle was not against Nero. That's why he could say, honor Nero. Nero's not the ultimate enemy. The battle was against the evil one who had Nero in captivity. You see, Nero was a slave to sin. He was a slave to Satan and his purposes. And eventually through persecution, many came to faith in Jesus and were were rescued out of the grip of the evil one and brought into the kingdom of God. And people watched Christians suffer and die for Jesus, just as Jesus suffered and died for us. And many came to faith in Jesus as a result. And here, Peter is calling the church to submit so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he reminded them to do this for the Lord's sake. Ultimately, it's for him. The honoring is ultimately for God as you honor those who persecute you. We should be willing to be thought of as evildoers who in the midst of people's false accusations towards us and their rejection of us, we demonstrate what Jesus did for us so that they might come to know and believe and worship Jesus and be saved from evil. So here, a practical question that I ask myself in study and I ask of you is, do you have someone in your life that you're suffering under or that you're suffering with? Great or small. It's just difficult to live under the authority of that individual or that group of individuals. What if we prayed for them to be set free from the evil one and delivered into the kingdom of God to be free to live a new life? What if, like Jesus, we decided to bless and honor those who reject us and ridicule us and persecute us? You see, because God is over all things and because God is just, we can trust him and seek to live honorable, godly lives here in our exiling and in our marginalization and not fight back or seek to get even. A significant issue in our day and age. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This reiterates Paul in Galatians chapter 5 For you were called to freedom, my brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law was fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor. Notice it doesn't say brother. It's not speaking of simply Christians. Others. You will love others. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Honor everyone. Well, yeah, but what about, yeah. Yes. Honor all. Love the brotherhood. Love the church. Give your heart to the church. All in. Fear God. Don't fear your masters. Don't fear your governors. Fear God. Honor the emperor, but don't fear him. Even if you don't agree with the emperor, honor the emperor respect and honor the office as one who is ultimately under the authority of God himself to bring about good even through the hands of evil leaders. I ask my question, I ask a question of myself here, am I known for what I don't like? Am I I known for people that I don't like because I don't honor them in my words and my reactions? Do I literally honor all people? Do I honor everyone? Do you honor everyone? Everyone. Do I honor the professor who is so arrogant and rude to me? Do do I honor those who are Democrat? Do I honor those who are Republican? Do I honor our president? Do I honor my landlord who is so hard to deal with? Do I honor him? Do I honor everyone? Well, here, I'm under a burden. I don't honor everyone. But here, we're given a way to do it. And I want to remind us of the gospel under this weight, knowing that none of us in this room, in our sane mind, would say that we honor everyone. The good news is, Jesus did. And as he lived as our representative in life, even in this way, he stands as our representative So that we are looked by God. God looks at us and he sees that we are honoring literally everyone because he sees Jesus instead of us in our sin. So here, even in this, we have a reason to celebrate Jesus. Why do you think it is that we have such a hard time submitting? Why do you think it is that we have such a hard time doing good and honoring others who don't know Jesus or who don't see things the way that we do? It's like when we're treated poorly, we retaliate. When we're persecuted, we despise and we reject. Why? Why do you think it is that we do what we do? What's under the surface of it all? Is it possible that we've misunderstood the reason for our newfound freedom? Or maybe that we've submitted again to a form of slavery. Christian you and I were set free from sin in order to do good to others, even those who do bad to us. That's freedom. We're to be pointing them to Jesus. We, we, we were set free to be humble servants of God, understanding that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. And Peter calls us to live as people who are free, free to serve God. And an indicator Of your freedom is your willingness to submit and be a humble servant. Those who are the most free easily submit and serve even when it's difficult. When when you know that you belong to God and he is above all other rule and authority, you are free to submit to authority and serve others knowing that they are all under his authority as well. He's the great shepherd and overseer. He sees all things. So as we submit there, we're ultimately trusting him. You got to get this, God. It doesn't look good here. From your perspective, I'm trusting that, that this is going to work, and this is according to your plan. He has said that you are completely righteous and acceptable in Jesus Christ, that you no longer need the approval of others or the security that anything else can bring you. And so you entrust yourself into his care and into his hands. And you do it for his sake and for the good of others, not your own, because you have been bought with a price, the price of Jesus' very own life, and therefore you belong to him. You are a servant of God who is a free servant, not one who needs to be a slave to anyone or anything else. You are free to submit. You are free to serve. You are the freest of all as you become the servant of all. This is who Jesus is. The servant of all who submitted himself to the hands of sinful man in order to set us free from sin and Satan and death, which is separation from God forever. He submitted himself there for us. I mean, imagine if Jesus had fought that. We would have no hope. He surrendered and he humbled himself. Taking this further, look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, uh, uh, but also not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this, being subject to masters who aren't only good masters, but also the unjust masters, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God and His awareness, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. So here, servants were were like household employees with limited rights, and often were doctors, artisans, nurses, and so forth. It wasn't necessarily what what we know in regards in our country's history of slavery, but but not quite like our boss-employee situation either. Peter calls them to honor and respect their masters, their bosses, the good and the gentle, but also the unjust, employees or be subject to their masters to know their place in the company to be aware of their role to show honor and extend grace and be easy to manage even when the boss and authorities are unjust and this is living out grace undeserved favor this is living out the gospel when we are trusting God who is in control of all things we endure unjust suffering and suffer injustice And what we do is we tell the world that we're living for a higher calling than merely getting what we deserve or getting even. And and peters he's very clear as he unpacks this further. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's basically saying you get what you deserve there. But what if when you do good, but what if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He goes further For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. You've been called to do good and be punished for it. This is your calling as Christians. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter says that Christians are called to suffer. And this suffering is for living, obedient Christian lives. This suffering isn't having to dig deep in your pocket to pay a DUI because you were stupid, right? This is for living good, godly lives. Suffering is not just the result of living in a sinful world. For the follower of Jesus is part of our calling. In order to know Jesus and to make him known to a broken and sinful world, when we are wronged or when we experience injustice, we tend to react in different ways. Some of us might, might take the, the route of revenge. We want justice and we're going to bring it about ourselves. And we keep a list of people who have hurt us along the way and we're going to get even. We're going to see to it. They will pay. Or maybe we go a different route. Maybe it's just self pity. And this is the Eeyore complex Woe is me. My life is the pits. Everyone is against me. And it's as if we already decide in our minds and hearts that you're not going to like me before you even meet me. Or another one is just this stoic resignation. Well, life stinks. What do you expect? This is just life, it's the way it is. And this ends up in hopelessness, this ends up in apathy, and this ends up in a lack of sympathy for others very dead to your emotion just the way it is and another reaction is self effort it's like in pride we say i'm going to endure i'm going to overcome i can take it it's a, it's a prideful self exaltation i'm not going to be like you i'm not going to give in i'm not going to become like everyone else i'm better than that and you white knuckle it you see in every one of these cases it becomes clear that you're not free you're not truly free You are being controlled by the other since it is the actions of the other that most controls what you're doing. You're living in a reaction. You're not living for something. You're constantly living in a reaction to something. The one who is free to endure suffering while doing good is the one who is truly free. And Peter calls this a gracious thing because ultimately it is a God thing. It is a result of the gospel of Jesus in our lives. And being able to do good and endure suffering is evidence that we have received the grace of God and that we know the grace of God. In fact, it is the result of the grace of God in our lives that we're able to do this. So Christians in the room, we have been called to this life of suffering. So suffer well. Make God look good, regardless of what happens politically, regardless of what happens with your job. Make God look good, suffer well. Don't run from it, don't run towards it either, but when you find yourself in it, don't simply embrace it, embrace Jesus. The surpassing hope that we have in the gospel. You've been called to honor, even when it's difficult, even when others would say it's not expected, even when others are saying you deserve better, you don't have to honor him, you honor, and you honor well, and you are faithful to this. Don't run from this. We've been called to this. Don't be surprised by this or caught off, by, caught off guard by this. If Christ suffered, we're going to suffer. And let me remind you that it's not suffering persecution when the Ten Commandments are removed from courthouses. We should be floored out of our minds that the Ten Commandments were ever in a court of law in this fallen world. Have that perspective. Suffer well. Have hope. Act like your kingdom isn't right here in front of you. Act like your kingdom isn't going to be established in the White House. Live as if God is alive and as, as if he is establishing a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken by anything that is done on this earth. Act as if he is sovereign and in control. <laughs> Have this Hope. He's working things out for the good. He's working things out according to his plans and purposes that he set beforehand. Take comfort in this. We're going to face some difficult days over the next 50 years. I can assure you it's not going to get better. And yeah, you will have freedoms taken, but be shocked that you had those freedoms to begin with. If they take our 501c3 status from the local church, big deal. Jesus is still good. God is still sovereign. And taking 501c3 credit from a church will not break the church and shatter the church. He will build his church and nothing will be able to come against it. Nothing. Let's hope in God, not in our circumstances, not in our comfort, not in how easy our American culture makes living the Christian life to be. In doing so, people are going to see that, and they're going to be drawn to Jesus, because that's not shaking you. You've got something so deep-rooted that it's compelling. No matter what we do to this guy, he's still proclaiming, "Jesus like Paul. If I live, great, it's good for you. If I die, it's gain, I'm with Jesus. Like we can't do anything with this guy. Like everywhere we turn, it's a good thing. No matter what we do to him, his hope is set in something greater. Than his personal freedoms. We're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We are to experience suffering and be gracious and humble through our suffering. And you can only do this, you can only live this out if you are constantly, absolutely confident in what Jesus Christ has done for you, in who God has declared you to be because of Jesus and what your ultimate purpose is in living this life today. That's the only way you're going to be able to suffer well and endure hostility and ridicule and marginalization and future persecution even here in America. You're confident in who Jesus is. You're confident in who God has declared you to be because of Jesus. And you're confident in your great purpose of making him famous. This is your high purpose. And you're confident in being obedient to this calling. Christians, followers of Jesus, you've been called to endure suffering, even unjust suffering. And Peter doesn't say, Get them back with revenge. He doesn't say, That's just the way it is with self pity. Nor does he say, I guess this is our fate, woe is us, with a stoic resignation. And he doesn't say, Be strong, we gotta get through this with all our might through self-effort. No, we've been called to this so that we might walk in the steps of Jesus. Jesus himself has provided the way that we live and react to this. He lived the life that we're to follow. So it's not those four reactions, it's this one. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds that we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Or as Isaiah put it 700 years earlier, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins, not his. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If you want to see... God's justice, look at the cross. Do you know what you and I justly deserve? We deserve death and separation from God forever. We do not want what we deserve. The one who is perfectly just is the one who's also perfectly merciful. He who never sinned suffered for our sin. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. He took our sin upon himself and and he received what we justly deserve. He who did not sin was treated as a sinner. He was treated unjustly because of what we justly deserve. We deserve far worse than anything that we're ever going to receive from our government, our boss, our professor, our parents, whoever. And God should simply strike us dead for our sinful rebellion against him. And that is just for him to do so. Jesus had every right to curse us, but he didn't. He blessed us. And in doing so, he honored us. And when we look to the cross, we see Jesus entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He knew he had not sinned, yet he took the punishment for our sin. He trusted in the Father's justice. On the cross, Jesus also cried out to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Or in other words, forgive them for they think they know what justice is, but they're wrong. Help them. Jesus took upon himself what we deserve so that God would prove himself as just and merciful. Do you believe God is just? Look at the cross. He takes sin very seriously. Just. But He also does something with it, and that's mercy. Trust Him. He will take care of what it is that you're going through or whatever it is you might face in the future. It was either dealt with on the cross or it will be dealt with when He returns. We've been called to endure suffering so that we might follow in His steps so that we might return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls and lead others to him. We deserve the wounds he received, but because of his great love for us, he endured the wounds so that we might be healed. We should be despised and reviled for our rebellion, yet he endured mockery and hatred so that we could be called righteous and beloved we who were slaves to sin and righteousness are now free from sin and given his righteousness so that we might endure suffering for his sake. So how are you ever going to endure suffering and justice? Go to the one who endured what you deserved because of his great love for you. And then Realize that any injustice you may face is really an opportunity for you to demonstrate the grace of God poured into your life through the suffering of Jesus Christ. The world needs to see another way. And Nashville, middle Tennessee, America has not gotten over. There's not enough. It's not tired of people living this way. Simply not enough. Let's point them to Jesus. We need to know that he is the way. And let's live this way. Jesus, overseer, shepherd of our hearts, of our souls. Lord, you know the passions and the desires that are waging war. Lord, you know what we're going through individually. You know how tough living the Christian life is for everyone in this room, every Christian around the world. You're aware, you're present, you're with them, you're over all things. Lord, help us trust you in this, help us rest in you being the great overseer of our hearts. And help it be obvious to the world around us that we're resting in you and not in anything else. That we, that we practically experience security from being known by you and under your watchful care than we experience security in, in anything else. Lord God, would we make you look good? Would, would we make you look alive as you are? Lord, help us as we live this Christian life as exiles and sojourners, beloved of you, beloved by you. Lord, as we live this life of marginalization and Lord, future persecution this perhaps going to be brutal, whatever the future is. Lord, help us to trust you through it all and continue pointing to you through everything so that those who are persecuting us would come to know you. Lord, help us live for something greater than our comfort and temporary pleasure. Lord, help us in this way. In Christ's name, amen.